Well, yesterday, if you were here, you know what a great time we had in our Christmas concert. Uh, it's the, the children did a great job. Thank you, Children's Ministry, for ministering to us. And uh, seeing our, our little ones sing to Christ and do the body motions was just great. It was a joy. Uh, thank you, uh, Pillars, Mark and Gary and Joel Carlson. Just thank you for leading us and helping us. Joel, you really help when you're up there. You know, I was like kind of lost and... You helped me out tremendously. And I know you helped Gary out because he's right behind me. So <laughs> thanks for that. Great job, the singles, and um, great job, the worship team, and, and Pastor Dan, great job preaching the word. Uh, it was a little difficult for me when you were mentioning that you were there. Game 7, Western Conference Finals, the Portland Trailblazers, and uh, uh, Kobe dunking. And so when you opened up the Gospel of Luke, I couldn't help but think of Luke Walton and... <laughs> My mind was veering that way. I had to get it back. And like, Luke, why don't you do those fall away jump shots? You know, I guess five foot away. He's got height advantage. You go to the basket strong. And no, Gospel of Luke, not Luke Walton. But great job preaching the word. And we're so encouraged to bring our family and friends to hear the gospel and uh, be blessed. Be blessed together. So um, I wrestled through what to preach on this morning and landed on Luke chapter 4, <coughs> verses 16 through 30. And um, this is our Lord's somewhat of an inauguration of His public ministry. And I thought it was appropriate for us to study this passage in light of uh, this being Christmas weekend. Luke four sixteen through 30. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the ear of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
Well, as you all know, I just came back from a three-month sabbatical, and uh, I had a lot of time to think, a lot of time to ponder and meditate and consider, and I had a little bit of an epiphany right in the middle of my sabbatical. I figured out one of the reasons, one of the major contributing factors to why I was such a poor student in high school. I figured out, I connected the dots, why I was such a poor student. Junior high, I was okay. Ninth grade, you know, average student. Tenth grade, my grades plummeted like a stock market, really poorly. I, I destroyed that stereotype of Asian students being smart <laughs> in Warren High School permanently. And I, I, I connected the dots. It, it, it happened when I was in kindergarten in Korea. True story. So in, in Korea, in kindergarten, you get like five, six weeks off. And, um, you know, I was on winter vacation, so I was just playing, goofing around. I don't know what I did that whole vacation. And then it was the last night, Sunday night, before we were to go back to school. Eight, nine o'clock, we're making the bed, getting ready. My parents were in the States. I was being raised by my grandparents and my sister. Around eight, nine o'clock, I realized... They gave me homework to do during winter break. I opened my school bag, and there was all this work I needed to do. It wasn't like hard work. It was like connecting dots and coloring and finger painting, collecting leaves, whatever. And I was like, oh, man, like I, I totally forgot. So I started to do it for like 10 minutes. It was like 9, 10. I started crying. I, I can't do this. Forget it, I went to sleep. <laughs> Next morning I woke up and all my work was done. Right? Perfectly. And I was it Santa? No. <laughs> no. It was my grandfather. He stayed up, you know, several hours and did all my work for me. I went to school and my teachers were like, Wow, James, you're such a great student. I was like, I got great grades for that and you know, it was uh I got a real good accolade for my classmates, and that was a major contributing factor to my poor study habits throughout my life, and it caught up with me in high school, where um, I didn't have my grandfather do my work for me at night. I couldn't take, him to, to take my test for me, and so I got what I deserved. I was surprised. I was just struggling through high school, and I had, actually had friends who looked forward to uh, midterms, who looked forward to final exams. They were happy when their report cards were coming. Some of you guys are nodding, like, <laughs> I know what that's like. Because for, for smart people, that's like payday, right? That's a day of boasting. That's a day where you can kind of walk with a swagger and, you know, strut a little bit on the campuses. I never experienced that firsthand, but they were happy because that's when they were getting their A's and A-pluses, A-minuses, and for me, uh, midterms, finals were like days where I, I dreaded those days. Those are days where I, I became all of a sudden really religious and <laughs> my prayer life increased. And I, I knew the meaning of grace, undeserved favor. God, I know I don't deserve an A, but can you give me just wisdom from on high to understand algebra or geometry? And then during report card days, God, could you just maybe... The teacher could make a mistake, and instead of a C, give me an A. Oh, that really happened. But there are, I have friends who are, who are just so happy to take tests, so happy to get report cards. 
And um, that's somewhat like what the people here in Luke 4, their mindset, their heart as they are listening to Christ. These people gathered here are not only religious people, they are faithful attenders to the synagogue. They are God-fearers. There are those who are meticulous about the law. The temple was ruled by priests. Synagogues were ruled by Pharisees. The rabbinical tradition comes from synagogues. And their major effort was to study the Torah, to study the law of God, and to meticulously, rigorously obey its precepts. So people gathered here were not the irreligious people per se, but they're the ones who were conscientious towards God's law. Not only that, they were ethnic Jews. <coughs> they were ethnic Jews who were part of the chosen people, the nation of Israel. But not only that, they're from the same hometown as Jesus. This man who has become noted for his miracles and his teachings and who many say is the promised Messiah. So talking about having an inside track to the kingdom of God, not only are they religious people, not only are they uh, ethnic Jews, but they're from the same village as the Messiah. So they are great, have great expectation gathered together in that synagogue, that faithful day. And they're waiting for their report card. They're waiting and they're happy the day of their reward where they'll get their 4.0s or 5.0s these days and uh, expected, expecting reward. But what they received was completely different, hence their reaction. Let's go to Luke chapter 4 and go through this passage verse by verse. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. It appears from this passage that our Lord regularly attended the service of the synagogue. Every Saturday, historical records tell us that the Jewish people gathered, if they're away from Jerusalem, from the temple services, gather. And the elements of the sabbatical service consisted of beginning with a prayer of thanksgiving or blessing. And then one of the leaders would pray for the congregation. They would all respond in amen. There was a freedom of the synagogue. Each synagogue was independent, autonomous, and they could designate someone to read a portion of the first five books and the prophets, and then sit down and give a sermon, give an exposition of the, of what the portion that was just read. And then they would have a closing prayer, and the congregation responding in Amen. On this day, it was the Lord Jesus' turn to read the text. And the text was from the book of Isaiah, verse 17. The scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. Now, it's not clearly delineated in this verse, but it seems like the portion of Scripture was not Isaiah 61. It was some other portion of Scripture. But the Lord deliberately turned to a certain passage, hence the attention 
of the congregation. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written. And you read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. A passage written centuries ago describing the blessings that the Messiah will bring with him when he comes to the earth. He will come uh, bearing gifts to give to God's people. Our Lord read and he stated, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That word anointed is Messiah. The Greek term is Christos, Christ. That's where we get the word Christ. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah of God, the promised anointed one of God. And he said, I am the anointed one because the Spirit of the Holy One is upon me. Meaning, these miraculous works, these wondrous, powerful works will accompany the Messiah when he comes to prove, to validate, to confirm that He indeed is the anointed of God. And that's exactly what the Lord did. He performed miracle upon miracle. He performed wondrous works and deeds. He uh, gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, lame to walk. He caused the dead to rise. He fed the hungry. And all this wasn't to uh, meet the needs of the people. All these were, as the, as the Gospel of John writes, they were signs. They were signs pointing to the fact that the Spirit of God was upon him because he was the anointed one of God, the, the called of God, the separated one of God. So much so, and, the, and the, those who knew the Old Testament knew this, uh, Nicodemus in John 3 came to Jesus at night, remember? And he said, we know, and the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel, we know you're from God. We know you're the Messiah. Because no one can do these wondrous works. No one can do such marvelous things unless God was with him, unless God's Holy Spirit was with him. John 5.36 The very works that I am doing bear witness that the Father has sent me. John 7.31 The crowds who heard Him teach, the crowds who saw His miracles said, He must be the Christ. I know they're trying to arrest Him. The leaders are angry at Him and they want to kill Him. But they said, When the Messiah appears, will He do more signs than this man has done? This man's the Messiah. John 9, 16, when our Lord cured the man born blind on the Sabbath, they said, this man can't be the Messiah because he works on the Sabbath. And the crowd said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And that's the, the condemnation that John places on the leaders of Israel. John twelve thirty seven. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe believe in him. These gifts, 
these abilities, these uh, works, these miracles were all bright, shining neon signs pointing to the fact that he's a Messiah and he says, Spirit of the Lord is upon me because I'm the anointed one. And then he exposits how, he reads and he tells how he's brought five gifts to five different groups of people. Five blessings. And it's not what we would expect. The people that he has gifts for is not based on whether you lived in my hometown or not. And you qualify for these gifts not because of your ethnicity. Your race has no bearing on whether you receive these gifts or not. Not only that, your morality or good works, your piety or devotion to the law of God has nothing to, to do with whether you receive these gifts, whether you qualify for these gifts. He brought five blessings who manifested distinct internal spiritual heart qualities. Look with me to verse 18, uh, second portion. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. <coughs> good news to the poor. The poor, the word poor is a verb meaning to shrink, cower, or cringe as beggars often did in that day. The Greek word is used to refer to a person that was reduced to total destitution, who crouched in the corner begging. He held out with one hand, begging for alms, and so ashamed of his lowly position, he would use his other hand to cover his face. That's the word picture that describes the word poor that is used here. We need to make sure that we understand the Lord is talking not about uh, the condition, not of the wallet, but of the spirit. He's not talking about finances here. He's not talking about one's bank account, one's possessions. He's talking about one's spiritual condition. Right? Spiritual condition. See, if it was, uh, uh, you know, material possession, how is the gospel good news? Right. Good news to the poor is, I have money for you. Right. I'm going to pay your car loans. I'm going to pay for your mortgage. All your student loans, because you didn't graduate in four years, but graduated in six, I'll take care of them. That's good news. How is the gospel good news? Forgiveness of our sins to those who are financially in straits. He's talking about the condition of one's heart. He's talking about humility. He's talking about someone who recognizes one's spiritual poverty apart from God. I, I've, I've come to proclaim good, good news to those who see themselves as they are, lost, helpless, and hopeless. Isaiah 66, only five chapters removed from 61. And here God talks about the man whom he esteems. The Lord says, I esteem the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. They tremble at their, at, before God's word because they look at the mirror of God's word 
and they see themselves and they see their own depravity, their evil, their wickedness, their pride, their malice, jealousy, envy, slander, all kinds of evil in their hearts. And so they tremble before God's word. And God says, I esteem that man. But to those who look at the word of God and they don't tremble, they become proud. They say, oh, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I'm a hard worker. I don't watch pornography. I don't listen to bad music. I'm not lazy. And they judge others and they become proud of themselves and glory in their righteousness. God does not esteem that man. Christ has no gifts for them. They, they will leave empty-handed. But to those, they look at the mirror of God's Word and they see their spiritual poverty. The Messiah comes bearing gifts for us. The poor are indeed those who recognize their total spiritual destitution and their complete dependence upon God. They perceive that there, is no, there are no saving resources in themselves. They can only beg for mercy and grace. They can only beg for mercy and grace. They know they have no spiritual merit. They know they can earn no spiritual reward. Their pride is gone. Their self-assurance is gone. They stand empty-handed before God. They can't demand from God anything. Their recognition is of their poverty is genuine. It's not an act. It is true humility. It's not mock humility. This is the one that God esteems and the Messiah has gifts for. In his confessions, Augustine made clear that pride was the greatest barrier for him in receiving the gospel. He was proud of his intellect, his wealth, his prestige, until he recognized that those things were less than nothing. Until he repented of all his accolades, his achievements, the things that he was proud of in this world, Christ could do nothing for him. Likewise, Martin Luther, it was not until he recognized, he understood and realized that all his sacrifices, rituals, and self-abuse counted for nothing before God, he could find no way to come to God or to please Him. Spiritual poverty, being humble, being contrite, being meek, is the first one mentioned by Christ. The first one to receive His gifts. Pastor John MacArthur has written, Humility is the foundation of all other graces. The most important element in becoming a Christian. Pride has no part in Christ's kingdom. Until a person surrenders pride, he cannot enter God's kingdom. The door into His kingdom is low, and no one who stands tall can walk through it. We cannot be filled until we are empty. We cannot be made worthy until we recognize our unworthiness. We cannot live until we admit we are dead. We might as well expect fruit to grow without a tree as to expect the other graces of the Christian life to grow without humility. We cannot begin the Christian life without humility. We cannot live the Christian life with pride, end quote. 
And so, in that congregation gathered there, most were walking with a swagger in their hearts, ready for their report card. But there were a few who were trembling because they knew they were they knew their spiritual poverty before a holy God. And Jesus said, I have come to proclaim to you good news. Good news. Not bad news, but good news. They're already beaten down. They already acknowledge their spiritual poverty. Christ comes to lift up the lowly, the downtrodden, those who are broken down. He gives and He says, I have glad tidings, a glad message, a glad proclamation and announcement for those who are broken over their sinfulness. And we know what that gospel is. If I could draw a parallel to uh, the good news with uh, Mike and Sonia's adoption of Aaliyah in Ethiopia. What an amazing picture of the gospel. Ethiopia is, as well you know, as you all know, one of the poorest countries in the world, according to the GDP per capita measurements. Poverty in Ethiopia is massive, chronic, exceedingly deep and severe. 89% of Ethiopians live less than $1 per day. Life expectancy is merely 55 years. It's a poverty-stricken economy, country. And yet here's Aaliyah. They tell her, we have great news. Right. A wealthy doctor and her husband from Orange <laughs> County. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. You know, that's not true. <laughs> from Orange County, California, in land of Disneyland, you know, land of right, Legoland and all of that, you know, in and out burgers. Man, they adopted you. And you are theirs. And they're right here. And they're coming to take you to be with them. And you're adopted into their family. And all the rights, all the privileges, and all the inheritance is now yours along with Tiana. Right? Well, that's, that's great news. That's good news in the physical sense. That's the good news in the spiritual sense. Christ, though He was rich, He became poor so that we might be rich in Christ before God. Christ gave Himself that we might be adopted into God's family. So we call God Abba Father and we call Jesus Bro. Right? We call Him Brother. Right? We're part of the family. And so we have all the rights, all the privileges that belongs to a child of God. And the inheritance of God belongs to us. Full inheritance, full blessing, full rights. And that's what, that's the first gift Christ declares. Right? For those of you who are trembling, no need to tremble. Because God has seen your humble heart. And here is the good news. Secondly, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the captives. These are those who know and recognize their enslavement to sin. John eight thirty one through 34, the Pharisees were aghast when Jesus said that they were slaves. And the religious leaders yelled at Jesus, How dare you? 
We've never been, a, been slaved. We've never been a slave. We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you proclaim freedom to us? We don't need your freedom. We are already free. And Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So for those who are trembling before the word of God because they know intimately that they're slaves, they're held captive, not in physical chains, not with a physical prison bar, but by their own hearts, by their own flesh, by their own idols, by their own sinful lusts and passions, never content, never satisfied, prone to wander, leave the God we love, propensity towards sin, entangled with love for this world and the things in this world. Christ says, I have good news for you. I have good news. I've come to declare and proclaim liberty. Proclaim liberty. I have not come to uh, loosen the chains or unlock the door. I have set you free. You know, we went to D.C., saw a lot of sites. One of the most like, inspiring sites was the Lincoln Memorial. And they had the text of the Emancipation Proclamation. When that was passed into law, all the slaves were immediately free. But those slaves that had escaped the north, and they were held until this ruling was made, because they might be, have to be returned to the southern states, midnight, they were freed. The, the soldiers came and said, Emancipation Proclamation has been passed. You're in Northern Territory. You're free men and women. And they didn't know, what, what do you mean we're free? That's the law of the land. That's the news we bring to you. You are set free. And from that moment on, all these slaves began to escape and make pilgrimage, underground railroads to the nor- Northern Territories, Northern States, because they know once they cross that line, they are free men. Well, that's what Christ is saying. You run to me, you're in Christ, and you're freed from sin. That's what Paul declares in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Romans 6, 6. Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. The third gift is for those who know that they're spiritually blind, spiritually discerned, that they uh, cannot see truth, they're helpless without God's help. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 talks about this. That our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing because in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God. The religious leaders, deceived by their works, their self-righteousness, their rites and rituals, they proclaim to be, to have sight. 
And they claim to be leaders to others to help them to see. And our Jesus to- and our Lord told them, "You blind guides, you are leading people, and you are blind. You don't know the truth, and you're leading people into the pit of darkness. You are blind." Their response was one of anger and rebellion. But to those who understand and believe that they are in spiritual darkness, Christ has come to give sight. He is the light of the world. He he opens eyes. And that's why we love Amazing Grace. That's that hymn. We sing it. And that verse resonates with all of us. I once was blind, but now I see. Christians, we understand that. I was blind to the beauty of Christ. I was blind to the glory of the gospel. I was blind to the mercy of God. The great, all those years, I was living in a fog. My eyes were set on these, in the world, and I was blind to the sweetness, the joy, the unsurpassing glory of God in Christ. And when he saved me, my eyes were open. A new horizon came before me, and I was blind, but now I see. How could I not have seen this all those years? I couldn't because I was blind. Christ comes bearing gifts of sight, spiritual sight, to those who acknowledge that they're walking in darkness. Fourthly, I love this one to set at liberty to release those who are oppressed. Those who are oppressed. Those who are oppressed, it means those who are pressed down by great calamity, pressed down or bruised by consciousness of sin. So they, they know that they're spiritually bankrupt. They know that they're blind. And they know guilt to their sins and the shame of their sins. And so they're oppressed by it. They're oppressed by guilt, shame, the burden of sin. They're oppressed by Satan, the accuser, accusing them relentlessly, condemning them. And they feel the weight of that burden. And they, because of that, because of shame and guilt, they're oppressed by the fear that God has rejected them, that God doesn't love them. Um, got another movie illustration from way back. Uh, one of my favorite movies, right, is Braveheart. But I'm not going to talk about Braveheart. My second favorite movie <laughs> is Searching for Bobby Fisher. Right? How many of you guys have seen that movie? Okay, if you haven't, during Christmas break, right, go to Hollywood Video, Blockbuster, and see this movie. Great movie. Right? Especially if you have kids. So it's based on a true story. Uh, Josh Waltzkin. Based on a true story. This kid starts playing chess. 10 to 11 years old. This guy's a prodigy. This guy's a genius. He plays chess like Michael Jordan played, plays basketball. This guy is amazing. He's beating all his friends. He's beating adults. He enters, uh, adults. He enters tournaments and he wins hands down. 
one of those guys that like plays chess against 10 different people at the same time and wins all of them. His dad is so happy, ecstatic, filled with pride. His dad starts to live out his own dreams vicariously through his uh, son's achievements. His dad starts to drive him to study chess, practice chess, get lessons, and most of all, to get that killer instinct to win because he can become a great champion. Well, this is driving the son away from loving this, this game. And so he starts to lose. He goes to these tournaments, and he faces these uh, hacked 12-year-olds, right? And he should blow them away, and he starts to lose. And his dad gets frustrated at him. Why are you losing? And him and his, his, uh, his dad and mom start to argue at home. And his dad was saying, oh, we don't have to worry. He's just on a bad losing streak because he's afraid of losing. If you're afraid to lose, you lose. If you lose, you get more afraid. He's just afraid. He'll just get over it. And the mom says, he's not afraid of losing. He's afraid of losing your love. And she says, how many boys grow up afraid of losing their father's love every time they come up to the plate playing Little League? How many of them? You're putting too much pressure on him. He's afraid of losing your love. How many boys play Little League and they're afraid of losing their father's love every time they go up to bat? And he, respond, he responds, all of them. All of them. Every boy goes to the batter's box and they swing and they're afraid if they strike out, their father won't love them anymore. He says, all of them. Wow, that's... That's really insightful. That's true. And so that's what... See, these religious people, they're going up to bat and they're getting hits every time. Right? They're hitting like triples. They're hitting home runs. Because in their own eyes, they're obeying God's law. They're saying, God, you must love me so much every time I am earning your love. And then these other people, they go up to bat and they're striking out every time. Even that was you, right? You're in Little League, your whole family's there, right? Your siblings are there, your grandparents are there, and you strike out. Okay, 0 for 1. You come back, strike out again. Okay, this time, right? This pitcher's tired now. 0 for 3. The whole season, you're 0 for 56, right? You're constantly coming up to bat, striking out. And you're afraid of losing your father's love. That's what. Christ is talking about, for those of you who are oppressed by the guilt and shame of your failures, of your sins, I have come to release you. I have come to justify you. I have come to set you free from that burden. And we see that, we just see, see this played out in Luke 18, right? Remember the, the contrast, the Pharisee, the tax collector? The Pharisee stands in fr the front row of the church and he stands out and he starts going over his batting average. He goes over his stats. He's proclaiming his statistics. He says, Lord, I must please you so much because I pray three times a day. I obey your law. I fast. I tithe. I do all these things. And you must love me so much. And then at the corner, at the back row, there is a task collector. He struck out his whole life. 
He's done nothing but fail and sin against God. He beats his chest and he says, forgive me for striking out. Forgive me for I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, that tax collector went away justified, set free, released from the oppression. For that Pharisee, the burden remains. He just doesn't know it yet. On the day of the report card, all that burden will be unloaded on him. But for that tax collector, he's been released. I mean, what great gifts the Messiah has brought with him. The final gift is for all these people, right? The poor, captive, blind, the oppressed. He has come to proclaim the year of Jubilee. So we don't have time for to go through it in Leviticus 25. This is the best year every 50 years. This is the year of celebration. Our God, in His mercy and kindness, ingrained rest into the nation of Israel. Every seventh day, they were commanded to rest. And then every seventh year, they were commanded to rest as well. It's the sabbatical year. God will give so much fruit. Their harvest in the sixth year, they can rest in the seventh year and devote that year to the worship of God. On the fiftieth year, it was the year of jubilee. Year of jubilee, of, of exaltation. The year of, of, of celebration, of worship, where the whole nation rests for a whole year, and they devote themselves in praise of God. And guess what? All debts are canceled. Those days, <coughs> the main reason you go to jail is because you have debt. Get yourself in debt. You owe money. They can't execute you because they can't get money from a dead person. They send you to jail. And that's a way to like ransom your family. You know, bring money out. We know you got it hidden somewhere. Right? He's going to be in jail until you pay off this debt. On the 50th year, all debts are canceled. And if you became a voluntary indentured servant to pay off debt, on the 50th year, you're set free. So imagine the celebration that went on for that whole year, and actually it's two years, because the 49th year was a sabbatical year, and then the 50th year is Jubilee. Imagine that. Two years of no work, of no harvest, no waking up early, right? No doing tax returns, right? Two years of that, of celebration. And Jesus said, I've come to proclaim as the Messiah the year of Jubilee. Not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense. No more work. No more trying to earn God's love or God's favor. No more seeking God's righteousness and obeying perfectly God's law. No more laboring to be pure in the sight of God. I have come to proclaim that all your debts are canceled. You are free in Christ. Verse 20. He read that, rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. Very common. You would stand to read and sit down to exposit. He sat down, and this was his introduction. All the eyes were fixed on him. And his intro was, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
I mean, let's try to visualize that for a moment. All is quiet. Every eye is fixed on Jesus. This is how he begins his sermon. He does not start out by telling them of the past. God's works of miracles in the past or of God's promises of the Messiah? No. Does he talk about the future promises of the kingdom pertaining to come? No. Instead, he talks about it here and now. At this moment, this passage is fulfilled. And the content of his sermon is not written down for us. But uh, I, would, I would venture to guess he was explicating this passage and how he brought gifts to these groups of people who are downtrodden, oppressed by sin. That's why verse 22, all spoke well of him, marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This merciful words. Kind, loving, compassionate words that were coming from his mouth. They all marveled. And yet, for the most, there was grumbling in their hearts. They were saying, verse B, 22, verse B, part B, is this not Joseph's son? Our Lord, knowing their hearts, said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. The parallel, the connection of this proverb here is this. They were saying, you profess to be the Messiah. You have performed great miracles at Capernaum at another city. You profess to be able to deliver us from our maladies, our sins, our afflictions. Do it here in, the, in your hometown. Show us that you are indeed the Messiah by performing these miracles here. And then verses 25-27 angered the hearers. It enraged them. Because he said, two well-known stories. In the days of Elijah, three and a half years of famine, there were many widows that were in need here. But Elijah went to a Gentile land, uh, to a Phoenician woman. Why? Because there was no one in the land of Israel who believed God. They were doing religious works. They were going to synagogue, going to the temple, making sacrifices, doing outward deeds of, 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 of religion. Yet, Elijah's time, there was not a single widow who believed in God. So he went to a Phoenician woman who believed God and met her need. At the time of Elisha, there were many people in the land of Israel who, had, who, were, who were lepers. Yet none of them believed God. Yes, they had these external like, trappings of religion, but none of them believed God. So he went to a, a Syrian warrior named Naaman and cured him. He was saying, I will not do any miracles here because though you're here in synagogue and you have all these outward pretense of religion, there is no true faith here. There's no true believers, true worshipers of God who are acknowledged spiritual poverty, acknowledge they're enslaved to sin, acknowledge that they're oppressed by sin, acknowledge they're blind. There's no such person here. Therefore, I will not perform any miracles. Matthew 13.58 tells us, 
that he did not do any works there because of their unbelief. Mark 6, 6, he marveled in Nazareth, the people of Nazareth. He marveled at their unbelief. He was aghast at how deceived they were by their external religion. They understood what he was saying. They, 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 they knew that Christ did spiritual MRI of their hearts and exposed their bankruptcy. They, the facade of their external behavior wasn't rooted in faith, it was rooted in pride. And so they got so angry. They got enraged. They have no authority for capital punishment, especially for religious reasons. They didn't care. They lunged after him, filled with wrath. They drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built to throw him off the cliff. They were furious to be told that they were worse than Phoenician widows and Syrian lepers. Their wrath knew no bounds. This house of prayer became a house of violence and rioting. They were intent, blinded by rage, to kill Jesus. Verse 30, by passing through their midst, he went away. He went away. Well, one closing thought. One maybe application to end our time. It is, wor- it is worth our emphasis. It is worthy of emphasizing this point for us to really drive home this point that the people who rejected Jesus here, who are angry with Him, who want him, wanted to kill Him, were not the irreligious. Not the prostitutes, drunkards, tax collectors. Oh, they were the ones who were thankful for the Lord's gracious words. They were the ones who were surprised by the Lord's kindness, gentleness, humility, and love. They came to synagogue ready for a big rebuke. Oh man, I've been sitting all my life striking out like crazy. And the Messiah is here. God's Son. Man, He's going to let me have it. He's going to, you know, shame me. He's going to applaud all these religious people and throw them at my face. And I'm going to get yelled at. Instead, he gave them spiritual riches, gave them sight, freedom from enslavement to sin, released them from being oppressed from shame and the guilt of sin. He spoke of rest, of worship, of celebration, and the seizing, the end of endless religious rites and rituals. So these downtrodden, uh, but spiritually poor, they flocked to him. They loved him. The ones who were angry again were the religious. The men and women who wanted to establish their own righteousness. They were offended by Jesus. And their pride further blinded them. Now, do we dare point our fingers at these religious people and say that we are better? We betray God's word and the doctrines of grace if we do that. We also battle idols of self in our hearts. The default state of our hearts is indeed self-righteousness, self-vindication, 
legalism. Trying to earn God's love by our works and think we add to God's pleasure by our, our works in the church and ministry and service. We fear somehow disappointing God. Somehow by striking out, God will be displeased with us. God will be disappointed with us. In our hearts, we need to ask ourselves, are we holding on to our religious works? Are we holding on to our outward ministries, things that we're doing, or affiliations to other Christians? Maybe we have family members who are Christians, family members, parents or siblings who are in the ministry serving Christ, and somehow we have this vicarious righteousness because of our association with them. Or are we truly holding on to the gospel alone for our self for our salvation, for our sanctification, and also our self image of who we are before God because of the gospel? You know, he is the only master who loves us more when we fail. When we strike out, we we mess up, we fail, and we confess He loves us more because we're boasting in the gospel and not in ourselves. Let's not point our fingers at these religious people, but point ourselves at the religious man that's in our hearts. Just like the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3.17 they said proudly, I am rich, spiritually rich. I have become spiritually wealthy. I have need of nothing. God said, no, you are wretched. You are miserable. You are poor, blind, and naked. Because of your spiritual pride, you are not rich. You are poor. So our takeaway this morning is not, what must I do? Okay, I must be humble. Right. I must uh, seek God, I must pursue God, I must obey God. That's, again, the road of legalism, the road of earning something from God. Our takeaway is, we must behold God's Son, Jesus Christ, once again. And we must understand and apprehend and believe in the gospel of God's grace. Salvation not it's just not salvation by faith. It's also sanctification by faith. We can't be holy. We can't be humble apart from faith in the gospel. And also the Christian life, our ministry, all of it is faith in the gospel. Our takeaway, especially at Christmas, as we celebrate Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, is to believe the gospel. We don't just start our lives by faith and continue in works. It is all by faith. So may we do a, a heart check. Right? May we do a, a spiritual MRI of our heart and see, do I acknowledge my spiritual poverty or am I boasting in myself? Right? Do I acknowledge my enslavement to sin and my only hope is Christ? Do I acknowledge my, that I'm blind? I can't see anything apart from Christ and the gospel. 
And the gospel is what uh, releases me from the oppression of my guilt and shame. My guilt and shame is my way of paying penance to uh, pay for my own sins. The gospel is the way out. Release from this burden. And will I enjoy this year of jubilee? Am I still working to earn God's favor? Am I truly reveling in this jubilee that Christ has brought to, to His people where I can rest, simply worship, and savor Christ and savor His gospel? Let's pray. Lord, how we long for that freedom. How we long to be released from this oppression. How we long to to see clarity, your beauty, your glory, your majesty, your loveliness. And how we long to be people who know their spiritual poverty, And at the same time, we know how rich we are spiritually because you became poor for us. This is only possible through the gospel. Lord, it seems like this season is the hardest time for us to have a clear view of the gospel because we're all immersed in so many thin things. The busyness of the season crowds out what is truly important in our hearts, mars our view of the truth of the cross. God, this moment, may we look to our motivations, look at the heart behind with which we do all these things. And we pray you would help us place the gospel there and place the cross there may that be the motivation of all that we do and say so that the Messiah of God truly be worshipped in our inner man and in our lives as well we thank you for the great gift of Christ and all the blessings he has brought with him in Jesus name we pray Amen